0: Welcome to episode 143 of Blockchain Insider. My name is Simon Taylor and I'm joined by my co-host, Kai Sheffield, Head of Crypto at Visa. How are you doing, Kai? You you had much sleep? It's been a fun start to the week, uh, so really
1: excited <laughs> for, for the show today. We've got great guests, a number of interesting you know, news items to discuss, so let's get into it.
0: Let's do exactly that. All right. And today is, of course, a new show, as you mentioned, and we're going to look at some of the biggest stories from the last month, including something about nfts i don't know if anything happened with that in the last month of course the polygon hack and the cryptocurrency heist where the hacker actually returned nearly all of the funds Um, so are they a white hat hacker or not and then of course we're going to cover the ecb starting to work on a digital version of the euro so can governments do crypto let's find out I'm joined by some phenomenal guests. We're going to start off with Ryan Selkis, who is founder and CEO of Masari. How are you doing, Ryan? You good? I'm great. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. Remind everybody what Masari does.
2: Masari uh, organizes and contextualizes crypto asset information, uh, which basically makes us the proverbial Bloomberg of crypto, um, or data and research platform that caters to several hundred. The top enterprises, both uh, crypto projects, uh, major exchanges, custodians, wallets, and uh, increasingly traditional finance institutions that are looking beyond just Bitcoin and Ethereum.
0: Thank you, sir. And joining Ryan, we have Ryan Lewis, who's author of the cryptocurrency revolution. Thank you for joining us, Ryan. How are you doing?
3: Good, thanks. Nice to be on the show.
0: It's great to have you back on the show. Uh, all right, let's jump straight in with the news. Oh my goodness, NFTs have been lying lately there's a ton of things happening in this landscape so we're going to wrap it up with a few stories but first well we've got somebody on the show with something to announce uh my co-host kai sheffield what just happened visa became the first company to purchase a crypto punk and you've launched a white paper unpack all of that for me what's the white paper why did you buy a punk Tell, tell me the story
1: yeah so so i think to start you know we think that Visa is, 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 is a lot more than a credit card company. And it's really been our, our goal to be this, you know, engine of commerce. And what's really unique is that, you know, Visa's been around for so long, we've seen all of these different, you know, commerce transformations. You know, we've seen, you know, brick and mortar to e-com, we've seen cash and check to cards. And, you know, as we've been closely following and researching, you know, NFTs, you know, for the past, you know, several months, we're really starting to see signs that, you know, this is a new era of e-commerce. And we're thinking a lot about, you know, what is NFT commerce? What does it mean? How can brands, how can merchants, how can consumers participate in it? And so we wanted to get involved. And so really our, our first step was, you know, let's learn and let's actually go through the process and, you know, collect an NFT. And so we decided to, you know, acquire, you know, CryptoPunk uh, seven six one zero, and add it to Visa's archive and our collection of historical, you know, commerce artifacts. So the same way that we have early paper credit cards and point of sale systems, we have a lot of really cool old relics and artifacts of commerce history. And we think about this past, present, and future of commerce. And we felt that there's a place that you know CryptoPunks as a historic project, you know, they deserve to be there. And we're also really announcing our commitment to starting to work with, you know, merchants and brands and content platforms to help them navigate and participate in the NFT commerce ecosystem. And so we're incredibly excited about the space and it's been fun to be able to to engage with and interact with the community as we've done this morning.
0: And Kai, tell me a little bit about the white paper that comes behind it as well, because like the CryptoPunk is the marketing that everybody will see. But what's the what's the white paper for?
1: So I think what we found is there's just a, a ton of confusion around what's the relationship between you know, NFTs, you know, blockchains, cryptocurrencies. And you know, we're seeing significant interest from merchants and brands all across the world that are you know, watching this space grow and saying, wait a minute, you know, we have valuable intellectual property, like we have a you know e-commerce business. How can we get involved? But if you're not familiar with crypto, if you haven't been in the space, if you don't understand crypto infrastructure, it's really hard to just know where to start. And so you see people come in and try and do a drop on the weekend and it's not really well thought out. We think there are so many different ways that brands and merchants can participate in the NFT commerce ecosystem. We wanted to help kind of unpack some of those ways and some of the opportunities that
0: exist. So I asked Twitter what questions they had from you and um, former host and good friend of the show, Colin G. Platt, asked the question, why didn't you just right click and save as?
1: It would have been a lot easier, uh, but I, I don't <laughs> think people would have been nearly as, yeah. as interested. And in. so I think you know, today in in, in our uh, interaction with, with the community is a, a really good example of how this isn't just a piece of art. It's not just a JPEG there's a very passionate community of collectors and artists and creators around it. And so you can only really activate that community and interact with it uh, if you're actually collecting. And so that experience of collecting for a brand, I think is incredibly valuable to build a brand identity, and and connect with these communities. And I think we'll see more and more brands recognize that over time.
0: Absolutely. Just to contextualize this Kai as well, it's worth just kind of reading out some of the other headlines happening in NFTs at the same time. And then I wanna bring our guests in to kind of um, pull this one apart. So we saw, NFT trading has surged at least 8x, and that was two days ago. That's probably even more. Um, I saw that OpenSea traded $125 million worth today. Um, There's penguins. There's bored apes now. There's there's, uh, uh, lots of different kind of collections really, really peaking. Uh, We saw SuperRare drop their own rare token to try and decentralize NFTs. And we've even seen cartoon rocks or pet rocks selling for half a million dollars. And there's just, there's a, there's a craziness, there's, there's potentially a hype around it right now. How do you contextualize all of this that's, that's happening, Ryan, as you look at it, especially when I think about the normies and person on the street, this stuff looks kind of crazy.
2: Well, I think crypto is really a family of innovations that, that all just happen to hit at once. There was the macro narrative that catapulted Bitcoin last year amidst COVID and unprecedented levels of government spending. There was a significant de-risking in Ethereum and its scaling plans coupled with a bunch of other layer one protocols and even layer two protocols that were solving some of the scalability problem on uh, Ethereum core transactions. There was a the birth of DeFi, which let's not forget is about a year old uh, since Compound came out with its yield farming proposal. And then we had nFTs and the explosion of collectibles. Um, all of them have matured in parallel over the past several years and taken off pretty much at the same time. So it's been a perfect storm. I don't I think that they all feed off of each other to a certain extent but the first thing you have to recognize is that these are, are very different phenomenons on the Bitcoin and kind of currency side, you have uh, the macro narrative really taking root with institutions. on the other extreme, Currency thesis. Yeah, you know, the same is true for for Dogecoin and, and how it's rallied, just as a, as a meme coin, for you know, young investors that are speculating through Robinhood. Ethereum and the other you know, major application platforms have grown because the fees have grown and because the, their stability and, and their scaling plans have been de-risked a little bit. DeFi is maybe the next down the pecking order when it comes to adoption from an investor perspective after Bitcoin and Ethereum. And then NFTs are just right now, at least a purely retail phenomenon. And we could talk a little bit about whether there's actual uh, any institutional support beyond just marketing. But um, by and large, all of these are riding crypto rails. They're all interesting in different ways. And it's fascinating to see it all by coincidence start to hit around the same time over the course of the last 18 months.
0: It really has been fascinating. That's definitely the word. Uh, Ryan. what are your thoughts as you contextualize this?
3: Um, I quite like the take. Um, David Hoffman uh, wrote a good post on Bankless last week where he described NFTs as the marketable surface area of Ethereum. And I can really see that, this idea that it's drawing in a new crowd of people who weren't really engaging with crypto before. Um, His particular take is that there are a lot more people that relate to culture than relate to finance, that it's a much wider audience. And just anecdotally, when Clubhouse was having its moment, whenever sort of six, seven months ago, There were all these rooms with people who didn't have a crypto background talking about NFTs and learning about crypto in order to get into the NFT space. And it does seem to have sparked this massive interest, as you say, from a retail point of view, among people who just weren't involved before.
0: No, that surface area comment, I think, really stuck with me. That surface area of like artists and creators, as Kai said, and uh, people in with communities and, and that whole space just didn't really look at crypto and now does. The collectors didn't really look at crypto and now do. And I love Ryan's point of this collection of technologies that have Matured together to kind of enable that. Kai, I'm going to come back to you as you as you look at this and just sort of say, um, is this a is this a specific moment in time? You know, is this a flash in the pan, or what? What perspective do you bring to NFTs over the medium to long term?
1: So I think it's it's absolutely early days, and you know, there's a ton of hype, a ton of experimentation, and there will continue to be. But I think what's important is that you know, culture is coming into crypto in a way that hasn't happened before. And when you have some of the most interesting, talented creatives now starting to intersect with technologists and developers and engineers, you get really, really interesting products that that didn't exist before. And I think the opportunity, I compare it a lot to to e-commerce. If you think about what e-commerce did for small businesses you know, now someone can sell, you know, a product, you know, to anyone across the world. It's not just, you know, who lives in their neighborhood, but you still have to manufacture that product. You still have to pack it. You still have to ship it. And that's a high startup cost. And, and it's hard for a lot of people to start a business and be able to do that. There are a lot more people who just have an idea and they're creative, you know, they're creating art, they're creating music, and now they can produce these goods in a digital way, and then be able to sell them to a global audience where they're delivered instantly to a crypto address. And so the amount of velocity and participation in global commerce that can happen when you have these digital bearer goods is incredibly exciting. And I think we've only just scratched the surface of, of what that
0: means. There was a really good Twitter thread by Chris Dixon from A16Z. that was almost like a first principles look at web two versus web three. And with web 2 he describes the take rate of the platform being really high because they really own the distribution uh, it you think about a, a an itunes or a spotify and how much the end artist receives at the end of it versus the platform and with web 3 how the distribution is really turned upside down and how the ownership starts to get turned upside down and, and how that can change things so NFTs are becoming business for the creators, but do you see that, uh, Ryan, in any other sectors? The where do you what do you think NFTs go from here?
2: Honestly, I'm not sure. I tend to watch very closely whatever the next big toy is. Uh, the the next major innovation tends to look like a toy at first. I think that's held true for for quite a while in tech and and in crypto in particular. I uh, I have invested in a few companies. I actually have not invested in nfts directly or really started dabbling in them directly just because i don't fully understand them as collectibles but i'm much more interested in the infrastructure companies uh, that are supporting them because i do think that having a discrete uh, digital ip that can be traded on blockchains is going to be a, a tremendous evolution of markets and, and financial markets whether you're talking about uh securities real estate collectibles metaverse you know digital goods some of the other early applications that we've seen or you're talking about much larger uh financial assets and 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 ip rights we saw in 2013 and 2014 early experiments in how to digitize ip and 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 make them non-fungible but tradable on bitcoin even and uh, and obviously it was too early then but it does feel like the rails are mature enough and and the tech is mature enough to support you know, a thousand different experiments, which is what's so exciting. Having said that, I would not necessarily uh, be short or um, or think that the the market uh, dynamics today are, are, are unsustainable. Perhaps they are. Perhaps they aren't. Um, but but this could be you know the first inning or. You know the third inning right before the the big drawdown in NFTs, uh, and and with these cycles, you never really know how high you'll go or how low you'll go after the initial surge. But I think the long-term direction is what's most important here, and this is where we're going to start to see a lot of the infrastructure get built out to support NFTs and all of their flavors over the course of the next ten years.
0: Yeah, the, the 10 years are a lot more exciting than the 10 months for sure. And I think that's a sentiment widely shared. There was a great blog post by um, the guys at John Street Capital uh, about a year ago called The Financialization of Everything where every kind of asset is whether it's sneakers whether it's uh, video games whatever it is there's a finance element to them creeping in and as you i loved your answer to is crypto mainstream ryan because you said for gen z and gen y yes it is because they live in this world where everything is financialized and also they can't rely on their 401k for retirement and they don't own property so they're pissed off and they're looking for other ways to make money so i think that That whole space is just uh, super exciting. Look, we could go longer on NFTs, but we're going to have to move to the next story because this is the new show, but we left you wanting more. If you want to hear more from Kai, uh, you want to hear more about NFTs, in the very next Insights episode, we're going to be talking all things NFTs and crack down on with some incredible guests that we're excited to have on the show. So make sure you tune in on the 8th of September for that one. Alrighty. The next story is about a cryptocurrency hacker who uh, at the time of writing the show notes had returned uh, $260 million of the $600 million they stole. I believe now they've returned nearly all of the $600 million. So this past Tuesday, as we record this, so um, a couple of weeks ago, the firm affected, which is Poly Network, wrote a letter on Twitter asking an individual to get in touch to work out a solution after more than $600 million had been stolen. The hacker then posted messages pledging to return the funds, claiming to be not very interested in money. On Wednesday, the company posted on Twitter that they had been sent back three cryptocurrencies, including 3.3 million worth of Ethereum, 256 million worth of Binance Coin, and a million dollars worth of Polygon. Uh, A total of 269 million of Ether tokens and 84 million Polygon tokens had yet to be recovered when we put this show together, but I believe breaking news that has now changed. Ryan, Unpack this a little bit more for me. What's Polygon? Uh, how did it get hacked? In in your understanding, I know the guys at Rect HQ did a really good technical deep dive, but what's the layman version of this?
2: Well, I'm not as uh, familiar with the specifics of this particular hack, but at a more you know meta level, uh, this is just the latest incident that shows it's a really bad idea to launder money, to extort people, to you know basically try to conduct any illicit finance activity at scale using blockchains because they're public ledgers, and every single transaction is ultimately surveilled. So even if you can manage to stay private during the hack itself, good luck actually spending the funds and, and moving them around because the the level of sophistication that exists today in the data forensics companies that are actually tracking on-chain transactions is so high and the uh, ultimate privacy of, of on-chain transactions is um, relatively unsophisticated. So by and large, you're you're going to run into situations where this, uh, which is hacker is, is now seeing where it's uh, it, it's fine if you have the technical ability to steal this uh, amount of money. It's quite another thing to think that you can launder it and actually benefit from it. And in fact, uh, I think the end result is going to be similar to what we've seen with other recent hacks, which is uh, most, if not all of the funding is returned. And the actual hacker is 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 you know ultimately going to be uh, chased down potentially for the rest of his or her life because whether you are trading on a blockchain or or, or you know stealing a crypto asset from an exchange by exploiting an exchange and, and their security uh, defense systems or you're exploiting a protocol, it's still going to be illegal and, and and courts are not going to look too kindly on it regardless of what jurisdiction you're in. So I think by and large these. Hacks are, are not the worst thing uh, that happens on a week-to-week, month-to-month basis in crypto because every iterative event uh, creates a more anti-fragile system and and the security of these underlying protocols gets tightened. I don't expect this to go away for a long time, but I do expect the results and, and the consequences if you get caught to be pretty severe.
0: Indeed. And, and I think those are great points, Ryan. I, I think my understanding is that uh, this is the biggest cryptocurrency hack ever just be because of the the scale involved. Um, but actually, the hacker exploited several contracts on the Poly network across three different chains. So they used a combination of Ethereum, the Binance chain, and the Polygon chain, and were able to sort of coordinate these things. So because it wasn't just on one chain, it was across many, they were sort of arbitraging those different chains. And there's a really good write-up on rect.news uh, of that, if you want to get technical as to, to how it all worked. Um, Kai, as, as you contextualize this, to picking up on the anti-fragility point. We saw in the early days of Wikipedia, I, I don't know if you, you were in college at the time, I'm, I'm old enough to definitely be one of those people. I wasn't allowed to use Wikipedia or cite it because it was getting vandalized too much and this thing was scary. Do you think there's something like that with crypto? Do you think there's um, kind of like, if, if I'm a boomer executive looking at this, am I just sworn off of crypto and I can't touch it now?
1: I think my biggest takeaways here are, are one, you know, DeFi is absolutely early and experimental and there's a ton of risk. There's, there's no question about that. But also not all DeFi protocols are the same level of risk and are created equally. And so I think you know, it's easy to see this headline and be like, oh, DeFi, it's, it's all that level of risk and there are hacks you know, happening, so you can't use any of it. And it really comes down to, I, I was actually surprised, I saw a number of people on Twitter who were in the DeFi ecosystem who had never heard of, of Poly Network before. Uh, and so there is, you know, a big difference between kind of who are the teams that are building these smart contracts? Have they been audited? Who are the you know individuals or investors that are interacting with them? And so I think what we'll see going forward is, you know, they're going to continue to be hacks of DeFi protocols that are, you know, poorly you know, constructed, but I think there'll be much better solutions for both retail and institutional investors to be able to understand and be able to manage the risk between different protocols to say this DeFi protocol is objectively safer than this one. Not to say there's no risk. But we'll get to that point where it's not all DeFi, you know, is terrible and you're going to get hacked or all DeFi is perfect and you're not going to, you know, we need to have that in between. And I think, you know, analytics providers, I think what Tarun and Gauntlet are doing, I think there are a number of really interesting companies that are saying, like, let's do deep analysis on each one of these protocols, determine what the level of risks are, and then let people make informed decisions if they want to interact with them
0: as I think about this, imagine that at a bank, imagine their software being audited. Would you have had an Equifax hack? Would you have had the Sony network hack? Would you have had the Target.com hack? All of these sorts of things. So hacks happen to, to the Fortune 500 companies as well. So I think that's good, good context. And you said something interesting, Kai. You said most people don't know what Polygon is. Just for definition, what is Polygon in, in, in your terms?
1: So Poly Network, from my understanding, there the hack was a protocol called Poly Network. Good point. That happened to use Polygon, which is, you know, a side chain or, So that's this stuff is complex. Like even the same name, it's in and, and so now, you know, is it Polygon is insecure or is it Poly Network like it really takes a lot of time for anyone and we follow this space to understand, you know, all of these nuances. And so there need to be more analysis, uh, more research firms. I think the work Masari does is fantastic of just like, how do you go deeper into protocols and assets and understand the differences between them?
0: Rian, what are your thoughts on this? Is this a a white night or is this a, a dark night? What's, what are you seeing on this one?
3: It's really bizarre. And as with everything in crypto, the whole story takes on a life of its own. It's certainly bred its own memes, hasn't it, with the whole dear hacker response, which I thought was absolutely fantastic. But coming at it as a developer myself, it's obviously every developer's nightmare. But as with a lot of hacks in DeFi, A lot of these problems originate not so much with bugs in the code, but bugs in the thinking around how people might arbitrage opportunities and how people might use the protocols. So a lot of these instances might be careless coding, but As often as not, they tend to be things, um, unforeseen consequences rather than necessarily code bugs. But I agree with the points that everyone else is making around anti-fragility that, um, you know, open source software, DeFi in general, it's all out there in the open. And it's a move fast and break things environment, which you probably don't want when it's hundreds of millions of dollars at stake. But at the same time, it is building stronger systems for the future. As they say, sunlight is the best bleach that applies to code as well as objects, and I think eventually it's just building resilient systems.
0: Interesting. Um, sunlight is indeed the best disinfectant. Um, I think about some other open source projects like Red Hat that run most of the servers in most of the big organizations around the world, or Java, which is most of the code operating in most of the big organizations around the world. Uh, those things were fully buggy and terrible to use in their very, very early days and wouldn't have been ready for the mainstream. So it's always a function of when, not if, with with a lot of these things. Um, and then the the other point about like... Optimists and, and people who are trying to build tomorrow tend not to build for the unhappy path. It, it Things need to get more mature and, and you need to survive first contact with, with the market in order to stop building around some of those bugs. So I think that's a natural process and it's really exciting. Rian, great points. Thank you so much for, for bringing those up. We are just gonna take a quick pause here whilst we hear from our sponsors and we'll be back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibility and Visa is helping everyone take part. Visa enables commerce across their network and crypto networks through solutions like FinTech FastTrack, a quick and easy way for crypto innovators to issue payment credentials. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. Hey, folks, over here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services, and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or someone you know is up for a new challenge and a bit of a fintech nerd like us, check out the roles in consulting across product, engineering, design, delivery, and strategy. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers.
1: Welcome back. For the second half of the show, we're starting off with the European Central Bank starts work on creating a digital version of the euro. So the ECB announced that it's starting work to create this digital euro currency as more consumers ditch cash. The project is expected to take two years. And the idea is to design a digital version of the common currency used in the 19 members of the eurozone. However, the actual implementation of the central bank currency could take another two years on top of the design and investigation stage. And so ECB President Christine Lagarde said in a statement, our work aims to ensure that in the digital age, citizens and firms continue to have access to the safest form of money, central bank money, she said. So Ryan, let's start with you. What what are your thoughts on on this trend around central bank digital currency uh, in general?
2: I think central bank digital currencies are going to be really interesting in 2040 by the time the government is capable of actually implementing them and pulling them off. Um, but until then, I think it's in the West's best interest in particular to rally around crypto frameworks and, and crypto infrastructure as the rails uh, upon which these assets are going to ride. So USDC, Paxos, uh, some of the other regulated stable coins are, are maybe the best examples where um, whether it's a digital dollar or digital euro, if you want to actually export your currency and ensure that it, it continues to have relevance as a reserve asset, in addition to warding off the counter, which is seeding ground to, to China and the, and the uh, digital RMB and their initiatives with DCEP, then I think uh, the only real option in the foreseeable future is, is to support regulated crypto financial rails because I don't know of any major uh, company or or any major uh, technology provider that's going to be able to roll out a central bank digital currency at scale uh, anytime soon. Uh, and and This, of course, would be an interesting point of discussion for our other guest uh, who's going to be much more informed on this subject and might have uh, an insider's opinion whether or not he can share that. I would be curious to see myself, but I am extremely bearish on FedCoin and EuroCoin gaining any traction in the next five to 10 years.
1: Rianne, curious your your perspective as well.
3: I think it's one of the things that's been really interesting for me with the whole debate around CBDCs in general. When you listen to um, politicians speaking who seem to have no concept at all that money can be anything other than state-provided, state-backed money. It's been a real eye-opener to see how myopic, you know, their ways of thinking are. But picking up specifically, I agree completely with everything that Ryan just said about the inability potentially to even deliver this. But I think the Eurozone has specific issues that um, possibly other standalone countries wishing with their own central banks wishing to issue um, CBDCs um, don't necessarily have. For example, at the point where people want to give this new euro programmable qualities how do the countries even begin to agree on what those qual- what those qualities should be you have countries within the eurozone that have completely different cultural approaches to money, um, completely different um, economic imperatives. So how do you begin to agree what the criteria should be? Again, it's not an immediate issue if it is a a straightforward um, digital euro um, that does not have specific programmable qualities, but it's inevitable that CBDCs will go down this route eventually. And I'd be interested to see how different countries within the Eurozone reach some kind of agreement.
1: It's a fantastic point. And I I feel like one piece that stands out to me is it's really hard to talk about and think about CBDC in a vacuum. And it's really important to contextualize it you know, in the, the broader understanding of everything that's happening with digital currencies and with the existing you know, crypto ecosystem, which seems to be driving you know, some of the, the motivation uh, for creating it. And I think, you know, another way that, that I like to think about it is that what is the end product and you know, how will consumers interact with it? How will they perceive it? What features will it have? How will it be differentiated from existing products? And you kind of have to start with the product is a digital version of a fiat currency. That's the product. And then, you know, there are a bunch of different design options of how it can be created, you know, what network it runs on, which wallets it can be accessed in, what type of money is backing it and what the rules are. Uh, And so you almost have to start with the end consumer and the end product and work backwards rather than starting with you know, just a concept of CBDC and trying to build something without the end consumer. And so we're really focused just on, you know, we think this topic is going to continue to be top of mind and, you know, it's up to central banks. It's up to, you know, the population of, of these you know countries, you know, if it makes sense to create a CBDC or not, but any central bank that's interested in it, you know, we think should consider it as a product and really evaluate it as what is the end experience for a customer going to be.
0: Yeah, I think on that, Kai, um, there's really good work by, um, actually a blog post by the IMF. Um, and they suggested that there's two ways central banks could look at this and and you see a spectrum emerging. And, and the spectrum is is actually kind of, um, it, it's, it's quite culturally interesting to, to watch the, the different approaches play out. So the, the Chinese model of, we will build this ourselves, top down, we will, we will push this and promote it to happen the European approach of we will regulate it into existence and we will make it happen that through regulation and through passing laws. The US has a history of co-opting private enterprise as an arm of the state, Um, visa itself, SWIFT and many, many other things has really used the US dollar and lucked out. But I love that point about what problem does it solve for the consumer? Like what problem does it solve for the economy? Do we need better, faster, cheaper payments? Yes, absolutely. Do we want them to be more transparent? Yes, absolutely. And the spectrum of design choices there is not CBDC or crypto. It's like, how do these things play together? Uh, and there was a really good bit of work again, by the this time by the Bank of International Settlements, that suggested central banks are given a choice. Do they try and become technology companies and develop really great tech, to, to Ryan's point, competing with the Googles, the Apples, the Facebooks, or even harder, the cutting-edge entrepreneurs in the open-source community? Or do they try and create frameworks that manage the material risks in the market, protect the economy, and help grow GDP? And that second thing is a really interesting one because I think at the research level, you see a lot of these institutions really, really get this stuff but maybe at the policy level there's a bit of a gap in terms of understanding and and hopefully we can start to to bridge that and if you're a listener and you want some uh, understanding to be bridged then do check out episode 140 of blockchain insider where we did a special all about stable coins and cbdcs and we dived all into definitions so uh, go check out episode 140 if you want to get into that
1: the the last kind of thread that i think is is worth referencing here is we talk about you know nfts As we talk about social tokens and some of these consumer use cases, I think that very often CBDC is thought about in the context of how do you create CBDC that someone uses to buy their coffee in person, when we're seeing these new payment methods emerge for ways that people are purchasing digital basketball cards on the internet from across the world. And so it's really hard to imagine what digital commerce will look like a year from now and, and nevertheless, five years from now. And so, designing with kind of new commerce use cases in mind, uh, we think is is also in, important. And th- and that kind of brings us to the next, I think, the last story here, with bridging popular culture and crypto. You know, Messi's welcome package at PSG includes cryptocurrency fan tokens. Uh, and so, his contract, you know, at Paris Saint Germain includes some of the French club's you know crypto fan tokens. Uh, and so, it's estimated to be worth. Yeah, you know, twenty to to twenty five million euros, and the club said there was a high volume of trading in its fan tokens. You know, after reports that Messi was set to to join the club, and so I'm I'm curious how how deep have folks gone on this concept of fan tokens or social tokens, and you know, does this how do you think about this use case? Maybe starting with with you, Ryan.
2: Oh man. Uh, I have not spent a whole lot of time here. Uh, everything that I know, I probably know from Mason on our team who covers NFTs and, and, and Web3 and social currencies actively. You know, I, um, I, I think that Fred Wilson um, just in the last couple of days wrote something about um, NFTs and, and social currencies that I thought was pretty spot on, which is um, the next big thing will combine social aspects, uh, gaming aspects, and you know, financial incentives to um, to really uh, create a breakout application, and uh, we haven't really seen something that's gained mass market appeal yet. NFTs are probably the closest, but but what we're seeing right now with uh, creator coins and and you know, fan tokens and the like, I think are probably a step closer um, to mass market adoption, and, and and might even be one of the breakout applications that we see with these assets because people. Uh, have an innate interest in being part of a community, kind of demonstrating their social status, or, um, or or kind of rallying as a herd behind a given movement, a given person, a given team. To turn that into uh, something that is not just a um, an expenditure, but a potential investment, uh, particularly for for kind of earlier stage communities, I think is very interesting. And um, this is one of the reasons that I'm convinced that basically every social media uh, market, every information marketplace is ultimately going to be run as, as a user-owned network and that's going to be powered by crypto. Although I've been around for a long time, I've not necessarily had that thesis. Uh, it it has always kind of felt and, and seemed more pie in the sky that everything that can run on crypto rails will. But I think creator coins and, and what we've seen more recently with NFTs have, have made me question that and I do think it's going to be beyond. Um, just financial applications and, and really into all marketplaces that we see crypto playing a, a real role at a societal level. And, and the way to rally people around different um, coins in different communities is often going to be through leaders, which would include celebrities like Messi. Yeah.
0: Yeah, this is interesting timing, isn't it, Kai? Um, Messi making the biggest move in history. This was the biggest story in sports and, and a fairly big story in crypto around the same time. So social tokens like Sokios.com uh, provide tokens to fans and they sort of use them like, um, like a shadow market because it's very hard to buy shares in your favorite sports club. So people trade the news and it's it's sort of this shadow market of how's, how's the club performing. And it's also a way, as, as you say, Ryan, to show patronage to show I am a true fan, um, like wearing the shirt or, or, or anything else would be or buying merchandise. So it's like a form of merchandise. But the other thing that Tokens allows people to do um, is not just speculate on the favors of the club and how well it's going to do. But it allows them to actually vote in smaller decisions like what community events should we be involved in. And you know, it's not gonna be team stuff like formations, but which sponsors do you like and dislike? And there's there's the beginnings of genuine engagement with the stars and building that connectivity between the sports star and the, the kind of the community and deepening that as you bring together the the social capital with an economy is really, really exciting as a as a combination. And I think we'll see a, a, a lot more. More of that in the near future, you know, Spencer Dinwiddie um, put out his contract in, in the NBA as being something that people could buy into, and and was really securitizing his future earnings. There's there's really something in where sports meets crypto meets community because it naturally has this sense of community to it. Uh, that people value. But historically, we didn't get to put a value on that, and we didn't get to create the engagement with it and, and and do so in interesting ways. I also think as you stand back and look at it, sports and soccer in particular is very close to the whole DraftKings world. It's very close to the bet and play. There is a gambling culture in and around sports. So I think we've got to be mindful of that um, and see beyond speculation for speculation's uh sake it is a free country these people are free to do that but actually i think there's a ton more value there than speculation in terms of fan engagement in terms of decision making ownership patronage access and everything that comes with that
1: the concept of you know more mainstream facing governance tokens is fascinating to me of like what jersey to wear like that's one of those decisions, like it doesn't really impact. I mean, I, I bet players actually have strong opinions, but if you let fans decide which of your jerseys, uh, should you wear the alternates tonight? Should you wear the normal home one? Like those are decisions that can increase the engagement. So it is kind of cool to see all of these primitives that are born in crypto and in DeFi that are used by you know financial experts to ch- adjust collateralization ratios. Now coming out of crypto into these mainstream, you know, social, you know, sports, music uh, applications where people are making decisions that they care about that don't require you know a deep expertise in, in finance. But Rianne, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on on this concept of of social and fan tokens.
3: I think we're just scratching the surface at the moment. The potential is absolutely huge. And I know there was a lot of conversation around the time of um, Spencer Dinwiddie's contract of is this actually indentured labor? I mean, obviously, you don't want a future where Players in whatever sport without that kind of marketing power, where, for example, somebody's maybe a junior player and people have bought tokens in a very junior player at the start of their career. You don't necessarily want that. However, it probably will happen. I'm particularly interested in the social signalling aspect of it. We've been talking a lot about social capital, social signalling, using social tokens as a way to show your allegiance. And it hasn't really happened so far. This crossover with, you know, with NFTs and the idea of um, PFPs, the personal profile picks, where people use their NFTs for social signalling. I think with sport social tokens, particularly, as we spend more and more time online, just like um, people might in real life wear the jersey of the team they support. We're going to be seeing more and more sports, social tokens being used as PFPs and being used as merchandise for your avatar in whatever virtual world you're in. So what with that, the governance angle, social signaling, plus the opportunity to buy shares in your favorite player, The potential is absolutely massive and we haven't even really started talking about where NFTs plug into DeFi and where social tokens plug into DeFi is an amazingly interesting interface that I think we're going to see lots of movement in over the next years.
0: And then we haven't even covered DAOs as well, which will be a future insights show where hopefully we can start getting into some of the governance stuff as well, Kai. Just to close out on this one, I think about from a US context, uh, an exchange like FTX, which is you know, sponsoring the Miami Heat, uh, sponsor of the Major League Baseball, you know, and and kind of um, there's a really great piece by uh, Mario Gabriel uh, calling FTX the Everything Exchange. So if f- if everything is becoming financialized, then everything can be exchanged. Uh, and that social capital side really stood out to me when you don't see people using avatars of a crypto punk they don't own. Some people are now even named after their crypto punks. I think there's what 6159 is one of the popular ones, and you guys have seven one, I forget which it was, but like that signaling is really powerful. Alrighty, okay. um, this is the part of the show where we quickly round up some of the stories we didn't have time to cover. First couple um that I just want to read out is PayPal have actually launched crypto in the UK. So we're joining you guys in the US. Uh, We can now buy crypto with PayPal. Uh, I guess that kind of answers the mainstream question, but let's see. And also we saw that Ethereum addresses using DeFi rose 65% in the last quarter. I would love to see the stat for um, Ethereum addresses using NFTs or what percentage is in that space. But yeah, uh, it's definitely a growth cycle. Um, We saw the crab market where things went sideways for a little while. Now things are up. And as Ryan said earlier, who knows what comes next? Um, And there's a couple of other stories we didn't have time to cover, Kai.
1: Yeah, I think back to to PayPal, the Venmo launching crypto cashback for their credit cards are really excited about the Venmo Visa card and seeing more and more interest in people earning crypto back when they spend. Uh, And then in recent backed 5G blockchain network raises 111 million. So this is helium, right? This is kind of a crazy example of how expansive crypto is and that it's now bootstrapping new hardware Infrastructure that people are are running these devices that can help, you know, provide 5G. And so fascinating just to see the corners that, that crypto finds itself,
0: you know, going into. We're really sort of low-key building a new internet. Um, it, it's kind of, uh, it's interesting how all these macro trends come together. It's super exciting. already uh, on the last segment of this week's show, we want to give a shout out to our Twitter of the Week, which this week comes from Julianne Boutou. Um, this is Twitter of the Week.
3: Tweet, 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 tweet.
0: It's the tweet of the week. week. Julian talks about a strong accumulation of bitcoins by institutions with an impressive fire emoji. And he kind of breaks that down with the relative transfer volume breakdown by size of the entity adjusted over a 14 day moving average. In other words, institutions be buying bitcoin. What does this mean? Um, Ryan, I'm going to come to you. Do you want to just give this some context?
2: This is consistent with what I had mentioned earlier in the show that uh, you you continue to see a macro backdrop that is conducive to larger investors accumulating Bitcoin, whether that's corporate treasuries, whether that's traditional financial uh, asset managers, financial firms, or just you know wealthy family offices. Uh, and I don't see that as something that's um, going to subside anytime soon. Maybe one of the biggest things that we're keeping an eye on at Masari is what is the half-life between Bitcoin to Ethereum and then Ethereum to other assets? Because uh, it is one thing to buy and accumulate Bitcoin, it's quite another to buy Bitcoin and Ethereum. And then um, once you've actually opened up beyond just a single asset as a bellwether for the market, like, like a Bitcoin purchase, um, then you you start to go down the rabbit hole and, and, and you get pulled further and further in to this being an asset class versus one bellwether a- asset that's going to give you exposure to the full class. So I think um, anecdotally, I, I you know, agree with that tweet. I don't have the charts in front of me and, and, and visible, but I assume that they support what I'm seeing anecdotally and, and, and what we've been noticing uh, more directionally over the course of the last 18 months since the beginning of COVID and, and the expansion of, of government balance sheets worldwide.
0: Perfect. Alrighty. Um, Kai, Ryan, any last
1: thoughts on this before we wrap up? It's an exciting time. Things are moving quickly. And I think it's just there's so many trends that are coming together in crypto at the same time. It's really fascinating to, to see them together
0: indeed well that wraps up this week's new show um, my goodness we could have gone for another hour just on the Nft portion alone never mind the the poly hack never mind everything else so I'm definitely gonna have to get you all back but um, if people want to hear more from you where can people find out more about you and what you do uh, let's start with Ryan
2: I am on Twitter at two-bit idiots more importantly company is at Messari Crypto, that's M-E-S-S-A-R-I, Crypto, uh, with daily in-depth research on the universe of crypto assets. We also have the largest events, uh, I think globally, uh, for crypto coming up this fall in just a month, mainnet.events, or you can access that directly from the Messari homepage. We're going to have about 2,000 attendees in New York, 100 projects presenting, 150 speakers. Hope to see you all there and um, should be a good time.
0: Awesome. Uh, and Marianne.
3: Um Also on Twitter at Rianne, R-H-I-A-N underscore is.
0: Fantastic. And Kai?
1: On Twitter at Kai Sheffield and check out visa.com slash crypto.
0: And as for me, you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or 11FS.com. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, remember to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. Maybe go check out episode 140 if you want to know more about all things stablecoins. Maybe listen out on 8th of September when we cover NFTs. And if you love the show... Remember to leave us a review. It helps us make the show better. It helps others find the show. So if you're looking at your iPhone right now, you could just hit that review button and you could really help us out. You can do it. I know you can. I believe in you. Alrighty, if you want to join the conversation, find 11FS on social media or search for Blockchain Insider in Google. Um, And you can almost email us at podcast at 11FS.com if you have any suggestions for stories we should cover. Thank you so much and goodbye for now.